0: On this episode, we highlight the oddball career of Dale Jarrett. What happened, why it happened, and who else could be a potential candidate for future odd success. But first, as always, this is episode 56 of Positive Regression. This is the Jim Hurtabees edition. David, who is Jim Herdebees? Well, to put it simply, he was a multi-disciplined racing talent way before that was cool in the late 50s and early 60s. We're talking USAC, IndyCar, NASCAR. And yes, he got one career NASCAR win in Atlanta in 1966, and he did it in a 56 car, David.
1: Yeah, most NASCAR fans have heard of A.J. Foyt and Mario Andretti, these these superstar drivers who proved successful, Regardless of the motorsport genre, and I feel like hardcore fans will have heard of Mark Donahue and Dan Gurney. Well, Jim Herdebees probably wasn't. I mean, those guys are Mount Rushmore level and Herdebees wasn't at that level, but he was a stud in his own right. Uh, he was a star sprint car driver. First, as you mentioned, USAC, late 50s, early 60s, and when he was competing in uh, the USAC Champ Car Series, and that's the series where uh, if folks competed in the ND 500, they would compete in the USAC Champ Car Series. Hurtuby's won four times in that series. All four of his wins took place on dirt tracks. He made 10 starts in the Indianapolis 500 with the best result of 13th. He made 36 starts in the NASCAR Cup Series, 11 of those resulting in top 10 finishes. So that's not a bad sample size. Uh, And the highlight, as you mentioned, was the 1966 win in Atlanta driving a Plymouth for owner Norm Nelson. He made six starts that year. Three of them were at Daytona. He finished six or better in five of them. Um, He was inducted into the National Sprint Car Hall of Fame in 1993, and now he is forever memorialized in USAC. Every September, the USAC Sprint Car Series competes at the Action Track in Terre Haute, Indiana. I've been there. That place gets very dusty, but it is a very good show. Uh It is the Jim Hurtabees Classic, a great race. Uh Hurtabees, the only driver to win a number 56 car until Martin Truex did it at Sonoma in 2013, so I think a worthy uh, a
0: worthy addition for the pod. Absolutely, harkening back to an era, you know, when men were men, right? I mean, his nickname was Hercules. Parnelli Jones once quoted him uh, was once quoted as saying, uh, "Jim Herdiby's in the same category as AJ Foyt." I mean, that's from a contemporary driver, so take that for what it's worth when you're trying to describe this uh, or learn who Jim Hurt Bees may have been. And one thing I read up on him about him, David, he was, uh, like many back then, it was dangerous. He went through a terrible fire, a disgusting description of the skin grafts that they had to do, and they had to mold his hands back in, in a weird way. And I guess the anecdote goes that, that they, had to, they had to put it in a shape that it was going to be kind of permanent. And he says, make sure I can hold a beer, because if I can hold a beer, I can hold a steering wheel. And he went on for a successful racing career after that fire incident. So a legendary guy, he drove the 56 in NASCAR, he drove the 56 in IndyCar, and he died at age 56. And this is episode 56 of Positive Regression, the Jim Hurtuby's edition. Let's get it started, David, because we are going to talk about a legendary driver in NASCAR, a Hall of Famer, a guy named Dale Jarrett. But what we're going to talk about is... That you know, we speak of him now as this Hall of Famer. We know him as a champion, a Daytona 500 winner multiple times over, uh, a race winner, a successful guy. But much of his career, at least the beginning of it, I don't think many people would have suspected his career would play out the way it did. That we'd be talking about him as a champion. And this was your inspiration for your first in a series called "The Leap." Here, what what started this all in your head about Dale Jarrett? I've always been fascinated
1: with good race car drivers or just good teams in general that made a considerable leap toward greatness. And Dale Jarrett's 1996 season with Robert Yates Racing fits that description, but there's another layer on top of that. There may actually be two points to this article, which ran last Friday on The Athletic. Uh, the first of which is that Dale Jarrett's career trajectory was statistically abnormal. If a driver hasn't surpassed above average production for his age by year two in the Cup Series, then there is a 4% chance it happens at all. And Dale Jarrett is the most famous exception proving that rule uh, he says, and I asked him to rate his talent compared to other drivers of that era. I'm also fascinated by the egos of drivers. <laughs> but, uh, but Jarrett, ever humble, he said he didn't believe he was ever a top five driver in terms of sheer talent, car control, all of that. And Alan, I don't think he was, uh, putting on uh, a humble air because he said, that's what fueled his work ethic. He got a late start to his driving career. He was an Xfinity Series rookie at age twenty-five uh, and a Cup rookie at age thirty. And That's crazy. Me, and that is, I mean, nowadays, yes, it is right. It's just it. It seems odd today. And and even then, he was doing all of this with very little experience. He told me he was never a gearhead. His father, Ned Jarrett, retired when uh, Dale was very young. So there was a period when Jarrett wasn't around the racetrack. He participated in other sports. He was his high school's athlete of the year, his senior year. So he had to force himself to learn these cars. And that took considerable time to go from neophyte to intellectual uh you know i was i was talking uh earlier this week with bobby labani and he he hinted a little bit about dale jarrett just saying like that's just a dry you cannot afford to make mistakes because dale jarrett won't make mistakes to to go from late bloomer to that guy is an is an impressive leap the second point of the article how everything came to this point In his career, that 1996 season, and the series is called Leap Year, and this was Dale Jarrett's Leap Year, everything that happened was a combination of availability, a willingness to try something new at practically every step of his career, and an extraordinary patience for, frankly, something he never knew would come, and Once it came, once once his dream team was assembled, he did not view it as a reward. He actually doubled down on the work ethic that got him to that point, and that is when he went from cracking above average to becoming a Hall of Fame race car driver, which is just crazy just talking about it. I'm not so sure that every driver is wired this way. I'm not sure that every human being is wired this way, but Dale Jarrett Certainly something special, not just an aberration, but an anomaly worth the story just because of the extraordinary effort that he put into his own education as a race car driver.
0: Yeah. And I think the context, some context is important here. You and I are similar age. I'm 37. So, well, I liked racing, you know, as a younger kid, I think about the 1993 Daytona 500. I mean, that really opened the door for me as to what I can remember, right? I would have been 10 years old going on 11. And, you know, that was a big deal, right? I mean, you know, Rusty Wallace flips, you know, I remember that. that. That made me a huge Rusty Wallace fan. Dale Earnhardt going for the Daytona 500 and who wins? Dale Jarrett in this uh, bright green car, the 18. I was born on November 18th, so 18's always been significant to me. And I remember it standing out, you know, Ned Jarrett calling him to the win, and it's this, this big memorable thing. But even with that Daytona 500 win, to me back then, Dale Jarrett was still the other Dale, right? I mean, you know, there was Dale Earnhardt and there was this other Dale, Dale Jarrett. Even though he had the Daytona 500 win, you know, he wasn't in the mix. He wasn't this championship type of guy. And then as the 90s go on he suddenly becomes a player. You know, this was the era of Rusty and Jeff Gordon and Dale Earnhardt and Mark Martin winning races. And somehow in the mid nineties, Dale Jarrett pops up in this new car, this new team, Robert Yates racing suddenly goes to two teams. It's got this new font on it, right? The 88 was kind of weird. It was like this bubble font. And you think back on it and now he's, turns into a champion and it it was a strange thing to think about in the 90s because where he was in 1993, it it just, it grew by leaps and bounds. It was weird.
1: I mean, I got to tell you, you can even go back even further and just look at the start of, of his career in the cup series, his first three years. And I'm going to try to put this in modern day parlance here, but the production and equal equipment range For ages 30 through 32, the average, the series average for the cup series is 1.0 to 1.1, right? And that, that's a, that's a steady number. That's if you're above that line, you are above average. And Dale Jarrett's first three seasons, he couldn't see the line (laughs) for average. So in, in in 1987, at age 30, he scored a 0.417 here i went back i found a recent example Casey Kane had this exact production rating in 2014 at age 34. And the only difference between these two is that the perception of what Kane was doing was bad because it came in a Hendrick Motorsports car. Casey Kane had three top five finishes in a Hendrick car that year. So whereas he underperformed, they they really produced the the same type of results. Their output was the same. Um which isn't something you want. In year two for Dale Jarrett, 1988, age 31, he scored a .345 peer, so we saw a regression. Uh, a similar rating would have been Justin Allgaier earning a 0.33 in 2015 at age 29, and this is a good comparison, I think. Allgaier for H. Scott Motorsports, which didn't last long in the Cup Series, averaged a 27.7-place finish. Dale Jarrett for two different owners and one was Kale Yarbrough and it's important to know that that is a, that was a smaller team than you'd expect, uh, one with Kale Yarbrough's name attached. Uh, the other owner was Haas Ellington and Dale Jarrett averaged a 24.3 place finish. So he wasn't even finishing in the top half of fields. Uh, and it's important to know that it was after this year that Allguyer elected to return to the Xfinity series for the 2016 season, and we haven't seen Justin Allgaier in a regular cup ride since. Year three for Dale Jarrett, a 0.612 coming in 1989. Ricky Stenhouse in 2015 had a 0.611 as a 27-year-old. Now, Jarrett's average finish was 22.7. Stenhouse earned a 243 Big difference that season. Jarrett's Yarborough team was good on on current smaller tracks. They finished tenth at Bristol, fifth at Martinsville, fifth at Phoenix. So there were good days for Dale Jarrett. It was Jarrett's best year at that point, but it was not enough for him to keep his job, and he was out of a job. He was out of the Cup Series at the start of. Of the 1990 season. And ironically. If he wasn't on the sidelines. That probably would be it. Because something happened in 1990. That sort of led this crazy career path that he just stepped onto and enjoyed.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah. Let's keep going down that path because okay. a lot of people know him. I mean, he gets, uh, get, you'll get into it, but I mean, the the Wood brothers, he, he eventually gets a win. And then we all know about the Daytona 500 and Joe Gibbs racing, the inception of that. And it was off from there. But yeah, I mean, if, if you're making those comparisons to those years where you're struggling and having finishes in the mid twenties. I, you don't often hear racing stories where you upgrade from there, right? Or where, where someone gets, takes a chance on you with those kind of results. What happened in this case?
1: Yeah. So three out of the ordinary things occurred that aided Dale Jarrett on his path to a championship and a hall of fame career. And the first came in 1990, Neil Bonnet was injured at Darlington and he'd be sidelined for a while. He suffered amnesia and the wood brothers five races into the new season where all drivers and teams are in the honeymoon period. They needed a driver. And more importantly, they needed someone who was available. Dale Jarrett was available benefiting from not being productive whatsoever in his first <laughs> three years. And, in, and in this case, in this case, availability was an ability and as you mentioned he he had um two even looking at the results they were very shaky he did have a finish at michigan he won the race beat davy allison head to head in a very close finish but the second thing that happened was a super bowl winning football coach had the idea to start a race team and i spoke with jimmy maycar this week maycar said in 1992 Joe Gibbs had nothing, not a thing, not a car, not a part. This was a startup team, Joe Gibbs Racing, renting engines and buying some hand-me-down cars from Hendrick Motorsports. Gibbs couldn't have any driver he wanted. He had to to be shrewd in, in selecting the driver, but Jarrett was willing because, remember, he was A substitute for the Wood Brothers. He told me that he never knew when his time there would come to an end. So there was never a feeling of permanence with this job. He he was looking for something full time. uh, And as weird as it is, football coach makes the offer and he's off to the races with Joe Gibbs Racing. And the third thing, Joe Gibbs Racing, he was there for three seasons. They followed a good season in 1993, they won the Daytona 500. And they had a strong end to that season, but they followed that up with a disappointing campaign in 94. He averaged an 18.7 place finish that year. So not great. It was a, just a big step down for the Gibbs program. And lo and behold, Robert Yates needed a long-term substitute, again, that term, for Ernie Irvin after Irvin's injury. At Michigan in 1994 and Jarrett jumped on it he he would be a Robert Yates racing driver for the 1995 season when Yates only had the one car the number the number 28 the Texaco Haviland car that we know so well and if you remember Jarrett's time in the 28 car if you think you do you probably don't (laughs) because it was it was not great uh he won one race it was a fuel mileage win at Pocono but he averaged a 17.4 place finish in a car that Irvin had averaged an 8.9 place finish the year prior. Uh, the results just not, not good. Uh, but it, it, during this time, Jarrett was scoring, uh, that year he scored a peer above 2.0. So he had already passed average, uh, for his age. But the team just wasn't there, and and when I talked with Dale about this, he said, "Look, it just it that team was not built for me Larry Mcreynolds, Robert Yates, they built the twenty eight car for Ernie Irvin, and it was a good team for Ernie Irvin, but it didn't suit Dale Jarrett. That was the third year in a row. he'd earned a production rating above average for his age. Ford and Yates they saw enough, uh they fell in love with his work ethic. Robert Yates had previously vowed to never have a second car." uh, for his team. But funny thing happens, uh, (laughs) Ford, Ford supplies the money, uh, and, and, (laughs) and, uh, and Jarrett became the, the full-time driver and uh, a 31 year old Todd Parrott was the crew chief and they were, uh, they were partnered and set, for the 1996 season and, uh, and that was the next considerable step in, uh, in Jared's career.
0: Yeah. Again, this is where the game changes and kudos to Ford and Robert Yates for keeping a driver around, recognizing the talent that even maybe the results might have been there that the driver talent and the drive that was still there. But again, like we said, like I was talking about earlier, all of a sudden in 1996, this new team pops up, a beautiful blue car with weird bubble letters, Ford quality care. It's like, what? what is that? Like, I don't know what that is. Like, you know, I'm a little kid. I don't know what that is. What is this new sponsor? What? What is this new bright blue cars? Red, white, and blue is like an American flag. And uh, again, the era of Jeff Gordon hitting his prime. Dale Earnhardt, Rusty Wallace, Mark Martin, Terry Labonte wins a, another title. And all of a sudden, this car, the 88, is now a player, David. Tell me about the 88 team, this this historic 88 team that went on a run in the mid-'90s.
1: Yeah, and this was the the money portion of Dale Jarrett's career. Twenty-four wins came between 1996 and 2001, and they won their championship in 1999. Uh, They earned two Daytona 500 wins and two Brickyard 400 wins. Not too shabby. Jarrett said they wanted for nothing. Uh, Todd Parrott, uh, in my interview with him, uh, uh, more blunt, believes it was the first team in NASCAR to have an unlimited budget. But in using an unlimited budget correctly, there are hurdles. The biggest hurdle for them was something you cannot possibly buy, and that is time. Robert Yates Racing had Mike Laughlin built chassis in its shop. Parrot came from Team Penske, Rusty Wallace's uh, program. He was familiar with and an advocate for Ronnie Hopkins' built chassis. And he would kind of have to shake some trees uh, inside Yates to uh, to get what he wanted. He eventually would. But building new cars, uh, getting those new cars and then building them, not something that happens overnight. So Parrott did two things that, in hindsight, were smart, immediate uses of a lot of money. One, he hired people that he did not have to train. They were ready to go. The team's engineer was Kenny Francis. Uh, Mike Ford, former crew chief for Denny Hamlin, was also on that team. And later in the season, and this is important, they had a strong second half of the season, Parrott hired even more people to create better depth for the 88 team. That was step one. Step two, they tested like crazy. Jarrett said there were days and nights he was at the wind tunnel for 12 straight hours. Money does not buy a work ethic like Jarrett and Parrott had. Jarrett said he spent more time with Todd Parrott than his own family. So again, a sacrifice of Time in order to do this right and to overcome uh, what Jarrett thought was a disadvantage he had in raw talent compared to Dale Earnhardt and Jeff Gordon and other drivers of that era, and and I think there and, and patience to me was a key. This was Jarrett's prime year. He was age thirty nine this year. And he knew that this was a good opportunity. He was also willing to be incredibly patient with it. And nowadays we see drivers entering their prime years or maybe just a bit past their prime in their age, in their uh, age 40, age 41 seasons. Would they be as patient, uh, waiting for, for something to build around them? I don't know. But in this case, Jarrett had worked to get to this point. Uh, what was one more year and, uh, and that 96 year they, they really
0: took off. Um, Patience and focus. Is that, I mean, do you think that that's what allowed him to succeed or exceed his expectations at such a late age?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, mean, I think that's, uh, that's a, a good way to put it. You know, I, I believe they, they knew or, or they figured out where to precisely spend this money. They were so smart about their cars and their people. Uh Todd Parrott eventually bought Jeff Gordon's original Rainbow Warriors pit crew. just bought him prior to their championship season. This was in an era where restarts were single file. Pit crew performance mattered way more than it does now, and thus no expense was spared. But more importantly, if Jarrett believed he wasn't a natural talent, and when I say natural, I mean just being instinctive behind the wheel. If he believed he wasn't that level of a talent, then it's easy to see how he would adapt in his later years, malleable maybe to the car he was running and not vice versa. He didn't mind changing driving styles because he didn't think much of his original style in the first place, right? And as a counter example, Tony Stewart may have been the most naturally instinctive race car driver I have ever had the pleasure of seeing in person. And there were a lot of them. Carl Edwards was that way and we never saw his later years to understand where he would, uh, he would go if he would switch to a phase two of his career. Jeff Gordon was this way. Kyle Larson might be this guy now, but Tony Stewart never changed to another driving style. Once his physical ability to dominate, once that deteriorated, I know he had some injuries later in his career. Once that went away, that was sort of it. There was no Tony 2.0. With Jarrett, we just saw many Jarretts. And I, I think that might have been the biggest key to his success was that willingness to just not be so married to what he thinks he was doing well or what he believed to be productive, because he probably didn't view himself that way.
0: Interesting, and we see how it played out for him. And one reason, I mean, it's interesting to to look back on this, David. And thank you for all the insight about Dale Jarrett. But one thing that we want to bring this up and talk about this so in depth for is because there's always, we can always apply it to the present, right? And potential future of who is racing in the cup series. Now, who, if anybody maybe could have a potential Jarrett like Ascension or, uh, you know, maybe we can identify some people. And before we get to, we had a, a list here that you and I talked about, but when I think, Later, late blooming success that includes a lot of race wins and a championship. David, the first one that pops to my mind is Martin Truex Jr. Like, where did this come from? Are these comparable stories here? Is, is that fair to compare those two? Uh, I mean, more than anecdotally,
1: maybe from the results getting and and team dependent side of things, I can I can I can meet you there. <laughs> uh, but Martin Truex was an above average producer and a race winner in his second full Cup Series season. And I think history already looks poorly on Dale Earnhardt Incorporated in the post-Dale Jr. era. They they merged with Gen Racing and then Ganassi, and there was never any traction. Michael Waldrop Racing was a step up for Truex. It ended abruptly before the organization went belly up Uh, the infamous incident at Richmond, which cost him, uh, his sponsor and eventually his ride turns out that may have been a blessing in disguise, uh, because another year of perceived futility could have done him in, but with Furniture Row racing, because that was, that was the landing spot, uh, clearly he had a a team on the rise producing fast cars, Uh, They found uh, just a jewel of a crew chief in Cole Pern, and Truex became a much more efficient passer, statistically, and he's spoken before about how drivers now have to be willing to adjust. Uh, In hindsight, his recent successes make sense because of this philosophy, this willingness to adjust to, what, new rules packages, new cars. Uh, just everything thrown your way. Now, he had a much more intriguing outlook than Dale Jarrett did early in his career. And Alan, I, I, I found a 2012 article on motorsportsanalytics.com uh, written by a, a younger version of me, which I explained how I used production unequal equipment rating to analyze drivers. And I wrote... Peer helps vault drivers like Regan Smith, who ranked 9th in Peer in 2011, and Martin Truex, who ranked 13th, who often go unappreciated into a category of very serviceable drivers who appear to have a high probability to break out. One could surmise that the two drivers could be downright scary given a dazzling plate of resources and equipment. And I wrote that in 2012. So um, bef- before Furniture Row was uh, was the Furniture Row that we now have fond memories of. Uh, it was clear Truex had something to work with. The only guarantee, and, and look, I, I mentioned the other driver, Regan Smith. Uh, ironically, he was at Furniture Row before they they became uh, you know big time Furniture Row championship contending Furniture Row. You never know where a, a driver's uh, path will take them. You'll never know if they're going to get that opportunity to showcase everything that they have in their arsenal. And and that that takes me back to again Dale Jarrett at age thirty nine being incredibly patient, waiting for this team to build around him. Yeah, they won their first two races out of the gate, the Bush Clash and the Daytona five hundred. Finished second in the next two at Rockingham and Richmond. But they had successes in that first half of the season, but there were also some rocky moments. In the second half of 1996, that bled into 1997, and they became uh, just so consistent. Every week, week in and week out did not matter the kind of race they had, the kind of track that they were at. They were able to produce a good result, and that is just not something – that exists for for every driver. So uh we don't know that in, but we can certainly make some educated guesses as to uh whether uh such a path, if it was available, could
0: work out. Good stuff. And now again looking more toward the the, the current uh crop of drivers in the modern era of NASCAR, uh there are some drivers uh, you know approaching their 30s or approaching what could be their prime years and it makes you wonder is another, is another potential breakout there. So let's go down. Let's, let's talk about some drivers. First up, Alex Bowman, 27 years old, four full seasons in the cup series, two obviously in great equipment with Hendrick Motorsports, uh, a win last year, a win already this year, seems to be getting better. The trajectory seems to be going forward, at least, uh, on paper, David. Uh, Alex Bowman's chances of, of being a, would it be, is late bloomer a fair, a fair term? You know, as an
1: analyst, I'm supposed to be skeptical and point to that 4% odds, but we should probably consider where the sport is at right now, right? We have significant rules changes pretty much every season at this point. We have changed the the format in which we crown champions. We see the series get new cars every 7 to 8 years. I'm willing to say it was easier to get comfortable with a car In the past and that is no longer the case. If you are a one-note driver, I don't see how you'll succeed in an era of constant change. And I think we're at the point where a cup car will feel different to a cup driver with each passing year. So someone like Bowman, who was projected to finally surpass series average production this season and already has a win, uh, his later than usual blossoming is atypical based on history, but Alan, it might be less surprising, considering the current landscape. I, I tell you what, there should not be a driver more thrilled that the Gen seven car has been delayed a year the The delay helps him because we know for certain he's capable with this car under these parameters he already works closely with Josh Wise that is his driving coach uh, in addition to someone watching over his fitness regimen so Bowman is taking extra steps to ensure a uh, personal improvement uh, the next step is an intimate knowledge about future cars eventually we're going to get into this gen 7 car and that kind of curiosity that dedication that's going to dictate where he goes from here uh, he's there right now with this current car. We'll see about the future.
0: Again, we're talking drivers who are, you know, getting their back half of the twenties—not certainly not prospects anymore—but uh, with ages and years and seasons in front of them. Another one, Matt De Benedetto, twenty-eight years old in his sixth full season, and much like Alex Bowman and Dale Jarrett, has found himself, uh, you know, after a good portion of his career, now in good to great equipment. What do you think about Matt De Benedetto and his uh, progress and potential? De Benedetto
1: surpassed series average production for the first time last season. Uh, that was his first time doing that in five years. So even more, uh, you know, fuel behind the theory that constant change should supply more late career breakouts. And I interviewed Matt earlier this year and our conversation centered on the idea of what is next? What is next? For him, he was the beloved underdog for years. He loves being beloved, not so fond of being the underdog, and he wants to change that. But he admires and attempts to emulate guys like Kevin Harvick and Martin Truex, who at their apex, their highest height, were so well rounded that if a race broke, Just in a straightforward manner, no chaos. Those two are near impossible to beat. And De Benedetto is close at becoming above average at every peripheral statistical category. But the next step is becoming elite at all, at all of those categories. Once he achieves that, then the comparisons to someone like a Truex are closer for him to becoming a reality.
0: And is that, I mean, is that doable? Is is that something you could see out of a 28 year old becoming elite at that age? And with this progression that he's on,
1: I believe so, because I don't know that he was in good enough equipment to develop bad habits. So this might be the case where he, look, he walked into essentially the team Penske organization with, Something of an open mind, and if you notice, the restart numbers are already there. He ranks second in preferred groove restart retention percentage. Um, that wasn't always the case. Two years ago, I think he only made two restart attempts from inside the top 14 in the preferred groove all year. So, it I mean, it's literally gone from a giant question mark to a big, bold exclamation point and that's just an unknown. Could he have always been that guy? Yeah. Could he have always been someone that really thinks about, um, how those pockets of races play out? Um, yeah. And, and it seems like he certainly is that now. And if he brings that curiosity with him and that, and look between Brad Keselowski, Joey Logano, And and Ryan Blaney probably doesn't get enough credit for this, but those are drivers who do their due diligence in studying for every upcoming race. They really put a lot of emphasis on their homework when we don't see them in just becoming better drivers, right? Jordan Bianchi last week told us about how Brad Keselowski is obsessed with becoming a two-time champion. David is going to learn a lot just being in that environment. And if that is something that rubs off on him, then yes, we can see some growth that we don't often see at this point in an average cup driver's career. Interesting
0: because, uh, I'll give Alex Bowman some credit way back in 2015, David, we did our first ride to work on race hub and it was with Alex Bowman and him and, uh, Matt Benedetto were very close and, uh, he just happened. We were we were talking because they were both in similar positions back then. Remember those, uh, you know? He was Tommy Baldwin Car and the BK Racing cars. And uh, Alex Bowman told me, you know, back then, this is twenty fifteen. If Matt Benedetto was in the forty eight car, he would win a race. And think of the 2015 context to that. And I was like, what? Really? And uh, it's glad to see all these years later. I mean, look, they're going in a good trajectory. So Alex Bowman, I think he knew what he was talking about. <laughs> Let's uh move on to the next one down the list. Uh, we're getting a little older now. Ricky Stenhouse, 32 years old. In his eighth full season, he just moved over to JTG Doherty Racing. The first significant move of his career, David. Really the first move of his career. Uh Ricky Stenhouse, 32. Are we, uh, still potential, I mean... Uh, Again, we're tying this to the Dale Jarrett story. So where does Ricky Stenhouse fall on the line?
1: He is in his eighth season in the Cup Series. He has yet to produce an above average rating for his age. At this point, it is difficult to see him ever doing that. And I don't think I'm alone. If Ralph Fenway Racing felt he was about to turn the corner, they would not have let him walk out the door. JTG Doherty needed a driver, and Stenhouse is, at the time of his hiring, the best producer they ever signed. So for the organization, his addition is a big deal, and it's worked out pretty well. He actually has a positive surplus value through four races, and there aren't very many positive surplus values going around in the Cup Series. He can prove valuable to a mid-pack or small team, but considering his production history and understanding how careers progress, a team built to win on a regular basis will most likely pass on employing Stenhouse. That that's just that's just the logical explanation behind it. You and I talked about Stenhouse before he lost his job. He has to change the way he drives stylistically. What he's holding on to, uh, doesn't work well more often than not. He hustles the car. No one is questioning how hard he tries when he is behind the wheel, but that by itself is not effective. And very likely in his case, it is counterintuitive. I interviewed Stenhouse for the athletic uh, late last year and we talked about a few of his problems, one of which was the crashing and that was when he told me um, yeah there are, there are some things that I'm going to do differently with this new opportunity. Uh, I mean I'm, I'm, I'm assuming he's telling me the truth but what I what I can't uh, pinpoint is is where he believes he thinks he'll improve and whether he will initiate whatever idea he has. Once he realizes where he has to change and adapts both to the equipment at his disposal and the kind of car NASCAR is building and and telling its teams to run, only then we'll see a different version of... Stenhouse uh, as he grows toward his peak years. But again, it comes back to a, a willingness to adapt, uh, a willingness to admit that, hey, what I was doing before might not have worked or what I was doing before it worked then, but it might not work moving forward. And for some, that is a very tough pill to swallow.
0: Next up, uh, when I you know you and I talk about some sometimes we plan these episodes out, David. and uh, one of the one of the drivers that came to mind for me was just I wonder about Justin Olgayer because Justin Olgayer dipped his toe into the cup series a few years ago. We mentioned him earlier in this episode uh, with H Scott motorsports. he is thirty four years old. Again, two full seasons in Cup, but went back uh, to the Xfinity Series where he's had race wins, showed promise, contended for championships. Uh, 34 in in the Xfinity Series. I mean, any chance for an upward trajectory at this age, you know, in general or whether it be Dale Jarrett-type rise?
1: If he wants to go down the Dale Jarrett path, he needs to be in the Cup Series, plain and simple, Uh, since he was last in the Cup Series – the cars were running, I don't know, 250 more horsepower. Uh, he, he almost would be a rookie again in that regard, but his past production did not inspire. And he is a driver that has a distinct style driving into corners deep, like he's Bobby Labani or Kevin Harvick. I don't, I don't even know what Allguyer would look like in a current cup car, because I don't know that that style would translate. Um, but he he can't do what he's doing every week in the Xfinity series and expect it to work. So it would take a radical change. He would look like a completely different driver if we were just watching him from lap to lap. But if the commitment to change is there, then I don't know. That's a conversation that we can begin to have, but, I don't even know that that talk happens unless he says, all right, I'm, I'm going to give the cup series another crack and he, he probably won't get the best equipment in the field, uh, initially. But from there, look, if you put in the effort, good things might happen.
0: All right. Another one that I thought of, you know, covering the truck series and missing it, uh, covering down the pits on FS one, uh, Grin and finger, David. At thirty five, he's certainly post prospect age, but uh, we've never seen him really have a chance in anything in Xfinity or uh, certainly the Cup Series. And maybe maybe it's the same thing with Allgaier. You got to be in there to you know have a, a shot at some ascension. But I, I just wonder, a prospect at his age, you know, he's not old, he's not young. Uh, and certainly has production in the truck series. Oh, is there potential there? Can can someone succeed at age thirty five having not been in the Cup series?
1: Ooh, I mean that is a that is a tough question. I mean, yeah, yes, you're right. I mean, the, the same thing holds true um, as it did with Allgaier here, Gran and Finger needs to be in the Cup Series as soon as possible if if this was going to start happening, and and he would need to start the learning process there. And look, I've told you before, I like N-Finger's production ability in the Truck Series. We talked about that on past episodes. I also really like Jeff Hensley as a crew chief, just in terms of a strategist. I don't like... That together they've, uh, been paired this long and they have had this kind of weird brand of individual success that is all stats, no award. And it worries me. It worries me that they haven't eliminated the delta between those two things. Uh, not to disparage the truck series, but if they're puzzled with how to have Tangible success in trucks. I mean, it, it's not going to get easier from here. The Cup Series is so so complex, and as we've already mentioned, the the game seems to change every year. So, I, I mean, I mean, just forget not not being in the Cup Series just yet. Enfinger is going to have to just change his tune and how he approaches the series that he is in. To turn all of these things that he does really well. Well, he's a stat darling, but it isn't leading to team results, which is how perception is created, how championships are crowned, uh, everything that goes with it. The, the narrative of his career isn't there with what we can quantify in terms of his driving
0: ability. All right. Good stuff. Uh, and let me, let's wrap up this episode with this question, David. Given Given the Dale Jarrett story, what can be learned from that in terms of evaluating talent, what to expect from drivers, and maybe team owners, or just the sport in general, giving up on a young driver maybe far too early? Is, is this a, a huge exception that really can't be applied to the Dale Jarrett story, or can a lesson be learned from it? Uh, yes and and Yes. So
1: <laughs> I, I think, I, I think it is a huge exception. Um, that is, I think that's clear, but there are plenty of lessons to be applied because you, nobody in any, any walk of life knows what is going to happen to them tomorrow or next week. And the only way to be successful is to make the most of whatever opportunity occurred. Dale Jarrett was effectively filtered out of the Cup Series because he was not a good driver. And because he was on the sidelines and available and something happened completely beyond his control, he, credit to him, had a good enough reputation to wear when he was needed, he answered the call and he went to Wood Brothers. And that was the beginning of the Renaissance for him. And from there, every, just the willingness to be a substitute, to be a driver for a startup team, for a football coach, which come on on paper, that's not supposed to work. He took a lot of chances on himself, big bets, you know, when, when writing the story. I thought of Matt DiBenedetto taking big bets on himself, leaving teams without knowing if there would be rides available. I thought of Corey LeJoy who I mean pretty much just went from ARCA straight to cup with not a lot of experience in between, but he he was a fantastic driver at the regional level, and there's so much aggression there, that part is visible, and he's had to adapt at a young age his driving style to fit his team. I thought about him. I think there are a lot of drivers right now that if they're stuck, if they just don't seem to have the total package, they just have parts and pieces. Dale Jarrett is someone whose career I think it's impossible to emulate because all of those twists and turns are – Crazy, I, I, you just can't expect someone to just always get injured every year and and then be available to to take those rides. That that that's just can't be an expectation. But at the same time, every step of the way, Jarrett was prepared. He bet on himself and he worked hard. That was what he touted to me. He was humble about his talent, but he said no one outworked him. And I, that, that might be it. I mean, the work nowadays is going to be a little bit different than the work that was taking place in the nineties, but still a commitment to being great has to happen before just being great. And I think those are some of the lessons that Dale Jarrett probably taught the
0: future generations of racing talent. Well said, well said. Good way to end it. Listen up young drivers and team owners. Don't forget, we are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, and Luminary. We are available no matter what your device. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating or a review. This stuff helps in spreading the word. We do notice it, and it is very appreciated. If you have any questions, send them to us. We did a whole episode on listener questions, and it was great. You guys are so smart, so please send us questions on Twitter at posregpod, P-O-S-R-E-G-P-O-D. David, we're into week four of our hiatus uh, from racing, but I know you're still working hard. You got a whole series of good stuff coming out. What are you working on?
1: Yeah. This week on the athletic, my one hit wonder series continues with a breakdown of Mario Andretti's 1967 Daytona 500 win. Uh, I'm also going to do some digging on crew chief tendencies, uh, for an article And another entry in the Leap Year series will appear Friday morning. I I think I alluded to it uh, earlier in the episode, but this one will be on Bobby Labonte's 1999 season. Alan, I spoke with Jimmy Macar this week, Labonte's crew chief during that team's heyday. And he pointed to 1999, not their 2000 title winning season, as the year they felt they were at their best so i'm i'm doing some sleuthing i'm looking into that uh the year labonte and joe gibbs racing went from good to great so please check that out good
0: stuff looking forward to that and uh look on my end hanging out but race hub is back so i hope everyone is checking out race Hub. we're just trying to provide you know uh 60 minutes of uh some entertainment and race talk each night monday through thursday on fs1 Hopefully you're still tuning in to the Fox family of networks for the iRacing series that's just been blowing up. It's Again, it's fun. It's entertaining. It's a reason for us to all come together on an early Sunday afternoon. And just talk racing and be together on Twitter and, uh, you know, have some fun and cheering people on. And, uh, it, it's, it's been a fun experience and a lot of good feedback, obviously, because the ratings have been, uh, I think surprising for iRacing. But, uh, again, it's just a, a fun way to, to, to take your mind off some of the things. So, and again, if you're listening to this, I, I hope it's, that's doing the same thing because that's why we, David and I are here for you to talk some racing in a crazy, crazy time. So thank you guys for listening. Thank you for listening. To positive regression episode 56 we'll see you next week